Okay, I feel like um, I feel like starting by saying, as I was saying, but uh, tonight I want to explore a little bit further some of the themes coming out of my previous talk and paint a very black picture. <laughs> no, I'm not. Um, to paint a picture and tell us a story about, in a way, uh, a look at this early glimpse or view of the human condition and then start to talk about, if you like, the road to recovery that the Buddha talks about. Now, there's a very specific image that's often used. Um, I don't know how old it is. I personally probably don't think it's that old in comparison to some of the early texts, but the image of the Buddha basically as a spiritual healer, a spiritual doctor. As a spiritual doctor or healer, what he initially, of course, he tells you is the diagnosis, what the problem is. Yeah, I think we had quite a lot of the diagnosis the other night in terms of, you know, dukkha is the diagnosis. This is the illness that you're suffering from. Um, Ramiro, who was recording it the, the other night, he came up to me last night and he said, have you got a title for the talk the other night? I said, Dukkha and even more Dukkha. <laughs> yeah. And tonight's will be called Even More Dukkha. <laughs> no. But this is, in a sense, this is the diagnosis. And one of the ways of looking at one formulation that has come out as almost considered to be the fount of Buddhist teaching, which is often known as the Four Noble Truths. Um, I'm, again, very uncertain, but I won't go into that about this notion of noble truths. But there's certainly four propositions that the Buddha puts before us or four things that we uh, have to do that he puts before us, and one, again, is this found of understanding dukkha. Actually understanding it. Understanding it, this, this is the human condition. And part of that dukkha is marked, obviously, by impermanence and uncertainty. You know, impermanence and uncertainty, you know, both of us have talked a little bit about this. I talked quite considerably about it on the first evening, you know, first full evening that we had. Um, in indicating, of course, that, that this is the root of a lot of our sense of dukkha, this impermanence that we suffer from. And then there is pain, of course, just, just pain of living. Yeah, you know, I'm human, I'm mortal, I'm wired in the way I am, and if I bang myself, cut myself, do what I do in this world, I'm probably going to hurt myself at some time, and there's going to be physical pain. As I get older, there's probably going to be physical pain as sickness ensues as well. So we're not immune from this, this physical pain. And then there is impermanence, this lack of certainty. We often long for certainties, don't we? You know, for stability in our lives. I don't want to make too big a deal about this, but often we long for these certainties and suddenly they're kind of cut out from under us. You know, we think we've found that place or that position in life where we want to be and things are going well, and then like the rug is pulled out from underneath our feet. Um, when I was living in India in the 70s and uh, early 80s, 
it was very interesting because uh, one of the places for completely undermining any sense of certainty was often India in those days. It's changed considerably since then, but in those days it was often undermining our sense of certainties. And there was one particular incident which I often have recounted, but which, which is really a good example of undermining certainties. We had somebody, I was staying in a centre in Delhi, and we had somebody who flew in from Switzerland. And he'd never been to India before. And as I say, in those days, it was fairly, fairly chaotic. You know, the East is, in general. It's a lot different from our, our cultures and the way that we live. By day two in Delhi, this poor chap was having a nervous breakdown. He just could not cope. You know, Switzerland, the image of Switzerland, everything working perfectly. You know, everything goes on time. The image, uh, the, or the, the place he came into, things just didn't work that way. So we decided to um, get him onto a train going north up to the Himalaya, up to Dharamsala, actually, where the Dalai Lama lives. And, and you have to go up to Patankot and then get a bus up from Patankot. And so we got him uh, a ticket for the train, first class, air-conditioned, on a sleeper, overnight to take him up to Patankot and we got him down to the railway station, found his sleeping berth, put him on the train and we stood waving him goodbye and the train pulled out and left the carriage behind. <laughs> <laughs> Not just his carriage but quite a number of carriages. <laughs> yeah. So your Western feelings of certainties get undermined quite quickly by these sorts of things. Um, I could tell you more, but I'm not going to go into them. But so our Western senses of certainties get quite undermined by some of these things that happen. But we live, don't we? We live as if we're immortal. Often we live as if life is going to stay the same and things are going to stay the same for us. And it doesn't happen. And this is a big dimension of our experience. So this is Dukkha. Then there is the Dukkha really which um, Jenny was talking about last night, which is the Dukkha of the self-inflicted wound. Yeah? This is the Dukkha that we construct for ourselves. You, know, you hit by the first arrow, you willfully push the second one in, you know, just to see how painful it might be. Yeah. So we do this, we, we inflict these wounds on ourselves often, we make the bad even worse, the painful even more painful. And this is the Buddha's kind of sketch of our condition, of our dukkering condition. This is how we find ourselves and often as a way of dealing with this, we get trapped into what is generally known as the second truth, the, the truth of an origin of this. Sometimes I get, think it gets mistaken as a cause. It isn't, it's an origin. And that a lot of our dukkha originates with craving. Yeah. Now, craving here, you have to hear this as being Jaina's face, looking in two directions. The craving to have and the craving not to have. Yeah. I touched on this lightly the other night. You know, we want things, don't we? And we don't want other things to happen. 
And if you drew up a list, if you kind of got yourself together a little list of you know, what you wanted and what you didn't want, I bet you that the things that you didn't want in your life probably outweighed the things that you did, you know, you did want. Yeah, there would be that imbalance between the two. So when we start talking about craving or desire, desire is often a very good translation of this as well, uh, then we're specifically speaking about that which we want and that which we don't want. And there's so much we want. Why do we want so much? You know, again, Jenny mentioned last night in her talk, you know, there is a sufficiency that we can reach, and most of us have reached somehow in the West, but we still want more. You know, we're still wanting more, don't we? We still demand more of, you know, even in ecological terms, we demand more of this earth to give us things that we want, all of the goodies of life. No wonder people in developing countries also want all of those things as well, because they see us with them and craving more and more and more. I have a feeling that this, and this is going again back to the Buddha's teaching, I have a feeling that this wanting for more and more is to assuage the feelings of Dukkha. Yeah? Now think about that. We often want to, in a way, cover over those feelings of unsatisfactoriness, of dissatisfaction with life. As I talked about on the first evening, you know, this is a failed project in many ways, isn't it? It's, it's, it's something we fail at. You know, we get that thing we want, it doesn't work, and then we go on to the next thing. Now the Buddha has a word for this. It can translate as craving, but it's actually the word is tanha in Pali, Trishna in, in Sanskrit. And this word tanha, really indicates a thirst. Yeah? We're all afflicted with a thirst. But unlike an ordinary thirst, which actually has another word in Pali, an ordinary thirst, you know, one that we can quench with water, this is an insatiable thirst. It's one that cannot be satisfied. This desire that we have to have and not to have and to have and not to have is unquenchable. In terms of the having, it, let us say that it has no terminal point. There is no point that it will stop at and go, yes, I can rest now. Have you noticed that in your lives? Have you noticed how in our lives, even when, as I suggested the other night, how even when we get those things, we're then searching for something else? And this isn't because we're bad people. I mean, let's face it, this is not what this is about. This is not to make us feel lousy about ourselves and, and to berate ourselves even more. This is not to do that. It's just to say, somehow we're misplacing our search for contentment or happiness or whatever it is, perhaps, that you're searching for in life. Probably the best word is contentment, peace, ease in life. Happiness is a very slippery word, isn't it? It means such different things to different people. But when we start talking about peace, ease, contentment, then we probably onto something which most of us, in some senses, want. Unfortunately, the way to not get that is to be enthralled to desire, to be enthralled to constant wanting. 
This has been recognized not just in the Buddhist tradition, this has been recognized for centuries. Um, if you can stand the Elizabethan language, here's a little quote from somebody called Philip Sidney, who was writing in the 1580s. He says, Desire, desire, I have too dearly bought with prize of mangled mind thy worthless ware. Too long, too long asleep thou hast me brought, who should my mind to higher things prepare. But yet in vain thou hast my ruin sought, in vain thou madest me vain things aspire, in vain thou kindlest all thy smoky fire. For virtue had this better lesson taught within myself to seek my only hire, desiring naught but how to kill desire. <laughs> Put in a little bit more contemporary language, again, 20th century poet, Rilke. All things want to fly, only we are weighed down by desire, caught in ourselves, enthralled with our heaviness. Yes, lovely images there. Caught in ourselves, enthralled by our heaviness, weighted down by desire. This word tanha in the original language um, has an immense pathos to it in the original language. Yeah, this is the human condition. Um, desiring. Yeah. This is unwholesome, unhelpful desire that doesn't bring about fulfillment, but brings about yet more desire. This is what the Buddha is speaking of. And we do this often to assuage, again I would suggest, assuage our sense of things are not quite right. Things are not as I would want them to be. Think of if you've had a hard day at work, out there in the workplace, hard day at work, what do you do? Come home. Probably the first thing you do is give yourself a little treat. I'm kind of guessing here, but from a lot of people, yes, I can see some smiles going around the, around the room. A lot of people will come home and they will get the glass of wine, get the chocolate biscuit, Switch on the television. <laughs> Does any of this sound familiar? No, of course not. You don't do this sort of thing, do you? <laughs> so if any of this sounds familiar, why do you do that? Why does that happen? Again, I, you know, I can suggest something, and hopefully you can think about it. I suggest you do that because actually that day has been quite hard. Yeah? It's been quite hard. It's often quite unsatisfactory quite demanding, taking a lot out of you. All the things you would expect of, you know, busyness that we get caught up in. You know, even the business of, you know, looking after a family, bringing up a family can make one reach for these things, for these props, these things to assuage that sense of, oh, is this my life? Is this my life? I want something better than this. And I give myself a little treat. Yeah, to do this, to overcome this feeling. And how long does it sate it? Just like the, the thing we all go off and buy, equally in the same, you know, with the same impetus behind it, 
How often does it last? It lasts a very brief period of time, doesn't it? We're on a kind of treadmill, and this is the insatiability of it, this treadmill of having to try and seek ever and ever greater pleasures to assuage the feelings of unsatisfactoriness which often underlie like the warp and woof of our lives. And as much as we try to deny it, it reasserts itself often. And this is why we do it. And the tools we use to assuage this, as I suggested again the other night, are okay. They're great for giving us pleasure. They're great for amusing us. Yeah? But they are no substitute in a sense for trying to find the real causes which underlie that impetus, that directionality that we have of searching for something in the wrong place. Yeah? We search often within those things, within those activities, and we are going to use a word which I'm sure you're all familiar with, within those habits that we develop, we, assert, we seek for something which we might call rest, peace, happiness, contentment, whatever it is, but we don't get it. And so the pathos in this desiring that I mentioned is in that it doesn't provide it, that it doesn't fulfill us, it doesn't give us the very thing that we're searching for. It's like looking in the wrong place. And have you noticed how the gaze, if you like, is often turned outwards to the world to make me happy? I mean, I joked about it the other night and said, you know, this is the demand we often make on the world, make on even those around us, make me happy. Make me feel whole, content, secure in the face of an insecure world. A world which often threatens to undermine even our sense of meanings. Yeah? And we look at the world and we try to stabilize it in some way. And habit is a good way of stabilizing it, actually, of trying to stabilize things. I do the same things. Yeah? We get caught in habit patterns. We get enthralled to ways of thinking and ways of doing things, often which perpetuate habits of desire. And habits of desire have a feeling tone, and that feeling tone is dukkha. Yeah. I'm making you terribly miserable, aren't I? <laughs> Honest, I'll try and cheer you up by the end here. But the point is, unless we understand this, this is the Buddha's, you know, this, the use of this metaphor, this image of the Buddha as the spiritual healer, unless we understand this, how can we begin to, if you like, cure the sickness? Unless we understand what the disease is and what the origin of that disease is or that illness is, how can we begin to address it in any real respect. You know, it's like, if you like, if you, when you go along to your ordinary physician, you don't go along to your ordinary physician to be told which, what is right about you, do you? You want to know what is wrong with you. you know, and you want to know if there's a cause to that, whether that cause can be eliminated, 
and I can get back to health. And it's no different with this. It's no different with this particular path. You know, the diagnosis is here for us to see clearly. You know, the etymology that Jenny gave the other night, vipassana, to see clearly. Yeah? The insight is seeing clearly into the nature of the way things are. The nature of the way things are, again, just to remind you, it's been said quite a number of times, the nature of the way things are are impermanent, they are, by their very nature, often unsatisfactory, and that we, if we think ourselves even to be something permanent, are in fact processes. Yeah? We're nothing more than processes. Well, I say nothing more. It's quite a lot, actually, isn't it? Uh, being a process. Yeah? Being a self is not to be a thing. You're not a noun, you're a verb. <laughs> yeah? Feel liberated that you're a verb. <laughs> Rather than a noun. Yeah? Nouns don't change. Verbs do. Yeah? It's, there's a lovely um, comment that was made by Catherine Mansfield, who's a short story, New Zealand short story writer. Some of you might have read her. And she once confided to her journal that she was very perplexed by this idea of being true to oneself. She said, when I look inside myself, I find a concierge in a hotel with 100 guests. <laughs> yeah. Some of you who do MBSR and MBCT will be familiar with a poem that's often read called The Guest House. Yeah, I see some shakes of the heads there, nods of the heads. Yeah, it's very much the same idea that there is, there's lots of characters passing through <laughs> this person. So we can't even look for stability among, in ourselves, in a way. We've only got to sit on the cushion, haven't we? You want a picture of instability? Close your eyes. Yeah, you don't have to go any further than that, and that's the way the world is. You know, so waking up, this this thing that the Buddha speaks about of waking up, which is a lovely challenge, isn't it? Yeah, I, I want to dispense with the word enlightenment. The Buddha didn't become enlightened; he woke up. Yeah. He woke up, and he woke up to the way things are, and the difference is. In waking up to the way things are, he woke up to them in, not to an ideal of wanting things in a particular way, but to the way they actually are. And the way they actually are is marked, characterized, stamped with those three things. With impermanence, dukkha, and of course, not self which is a strange word, but it's you know, really indicating the process nature of who we are rather than anything fixed within us. Yeah? This, this is why what we're engaging in here works, actually. Yeah? If you were a fixed thing, yeah, you couldn't change, ultimately. You know, deep down, you couldn't change who you are. Yeah? If there's a little kernel inside of you that was really bad, you would stay bad on this idea. Yeah, no matter what you did, we could tinker around with the peripheries, but you know, this wouldn't work. What we're engaging in 
this kind of transformation of mind, this transformation of ways of looking at things and seeing things in the way they are, just would not occur if we were a fixed thing. So this is why this is important. I'm not going to go into detail about it, but this is why it's important. And this is the nature of things. But because we don't take those on board, because we don't take impermanence on board, for all the reasons I gave in the other talk the other night, we, we emotionally don't connect with it. It's, we can be fearful about it. It's quite scary, isn't it? Everything is impermanent. Yeah, I said you might agree with it, but it's still scary, isn't it, that everything is impermanent, yeah? including ourselves. It threatens to undermine the meanings that we try to stabilize in our lives, the certainties that we feel that we might have, the securities that we long for. It threatens to undermine all of that. Yet in itself, because things are impermanent, doesn't make them less valuable. There's almost a sort of equation, if it's impermanent, it can't be worth that much. It's really interesting in Japanese culture, in Japanese culture, the highest aesthetic value in Japanese culture is cherry blossom because it's impermanent and it lasts only for a short period of time. It's really interesting, like we get the weather reports, they get cherry blossom reports in Japan about where the best cherry blossom is to go and have a look at. Because it lasts for such a short period of time, doesn't it? Before it drops and is gone. But is valued for that. And we can think almost of human life like that. We value it even in its brevity. Even in its brevity it can be valued. Yet, because there is fear... There is often fear of taking this on board. Then we look and don't find this stability and then seek our pleasures, our sustenance in places, again, which don't really provide it. We try, in a sense, to stick a band-aid on a hemorrhage and it doesn't work. In fact, it often makes it worse. So what the Buddha is suggesting is that this strategy, which is actually a strategy of two things, which is a strategy of craving and desire and a word that should be familiar to you. It's called attachment. Grasping after things. Grasping after whatever. Holding on to it. Desperately, desperately clinging to things to try and stabilize them in their evanescence, in their brevity. We try to do this. Now, I hope you can see that rather than these strategies that we possess to try and make our lives meaningful, make them feel more secure, etc., etc., rather than invoking condemnation, or criticism, really invoke, in some senses, a tremendous sense of compassion for the human condition, because this is, you know, a suffering condition. And I use that word deliberately this time, as opposed to the word unsatisfactory or, you know, unsatisfying. 
So the human condition in this search, this futile search, being like a mouse on a treadmill, trying to find something and going round and round and round, often trapped within habit patterns, doing the same things, doing and making the same mistakes in one's life, doesn't really invoke, as I say, condemnation or criticism, does it? It really should invoke, in some ways, a friendliness and compassion towards the human condition, that we do these things. And we do them not, and I really emphasise it, not because we're bad people, but we are trying to find something. We're trying to find peace, contentment, happiness. It's just we look in all the wrong places for it. This is the Buddha's diagnosis. We look in the wrong places. We look through it, in it, for it, I should say. We look for it in this craving and attachment to things and get entrapped by our attachments. I haven't got it with me, but there's a lovely poem by Rilke where he talks about a panther in a zoo, in a cage, and the panther is pacing up and down, and every so often through the bars of the cage it glimpses freedom. Yeah. Now I think this is, a, this is a good metaphor for the human condition. However, the difference is the panther's been put in this cage. We put ourselves in the cage, and we create the bars, and then complain we're not free. Does that feel familiar at all? We create the bars, and the bars are often the strategies and the habits that we develop over the course of a lifetime to attempt to find the thing which we desire, which is outside those bars, which is the freedom from that tyranny of craving, of endless greed, unsatisfiable, doesn't matter what you get. Look at the contemporary world, you know, it's interesting, isn't it, when we see the spread of depression through the contemporary world. It seems to know no class boundaries, which is really interesting. No economic brackets. It seems to be distributed pretty evenly through, you know, the various strata of a society, from the wealthy to the very poor, where you might expect it to be really heavily weighted with poor people. It isn't. When we look at this, the escalation of depression in society, we often see it really heavily in very wealthy people as much as people who have relatively very little in comparison. So I think we can get a sense of of the, the way this project is failing us. in life. But, of course, it's what we know. It's the familiar, isn't it? It was so familiar, and again, to go back to these early Buddhist texts that we keep on mentioning, it was so familiar even in the time of the Buddha that he described entering into this path as like swimming against the tide. Yeah? It was like swimming against the tide. In doing what we do, in the way we're going against the mass of a society, 
going in one direction and we're going in the other direction. Yeah. So again, I think it was indicating this is not easy because it's much easier just to go with the tide rather than swim against it. Yeah. And so this required, from his point of view, it required energy. It required commitment. It required, actually, it's interesting, the word for energy in Pali and Sanskrit is a word called virya. It's the origin of our word virile and vigor and all of these words that we have in English. It, but in the Sanskrit and Pali also has a connotation of heroism as well, as energy. Yeah? That to take this stance and move against the tide actually required a heroism. Yeah? Be radical. Go against what everybody else is doing. Go against buying into the habit patterns that we're offered as solaces to the disappointments of life. Yeah? Yet we buy into this often at a very early age, don't we? Yeah? This is what we get given. This is part of our, in a sense, our inheritance. Now, why tell you all this? Why depress you in this way? <laughs> Well, it's because this is the diagnosis. This is the diagnosis and this is saying there is an origin to this. And if we really begin to understand this, we begin to see the origin of our entrapment, the origin of feeling that life is not getting, you know, giving us what we want. We begin to see where this arises from. We perhaps start to then get a little disillusioned with some of the strategies that are offered to us, developed by ourselves as well, to try and deal with the difficulties of life. Now, the one thing the Buddha never said, he never said this, even about you know, the kind of awakened state, that life, life is easy. He never said that at all. Yeah. He was never saying that what we're dealing with is easy. This is why it required this degree of courageousness, this heroism, to embrace the difficulties of life rather than shun them, to embrace the impermanence. Yeah. Embracing this rather than pushing it away. This is one of our habit patterns, isn't it? One of our strategies, we get attached even to that which we don't want. We don't let it go. You know, there's all kinds of stories in the Buddhist tradition about people being attached actually to the very thing they're trying to get rid of. Yeah. We get attached to these things. We're entrapped by them. All sorts of metaphors are used in these early texts to sort of try and convey this sense of entrapment that we find ourselves in, such as being bound, you know, being fettered. You know, it's a lovely word, isn't it? Fetter. It's what you do to horses if you don't want them to run away. You fetter them, tie their legs. You know? And there's a whole set of conditions which includes desire here and sense desire, which is a condition which fetters us to certain forms of behavior. Our sense of self, which also fetters us. 
you know, to certain ways of behavior. There's an image used in the early texts which I think says it all. Now I'm gonna now I'm going to lighten it up a bit. <laughs> which is this image which is in the early texts is of how you catch a monkey. Lots of different ways of catching monkey, and they still you can use them in Africa sometimes and, and in Asia. What you tend to do is you get a bulbous bowl of some sort. You bury it in the ground and it has a neck on it, a thin neck. And you put something like a fruit in the bottom of the bowl. And what the monkey does, it comes along and it puts its arm down with its paw into the bowl, grabs what's at the bottom. And of course now its fist is bigger than the neck. Its fist is bigger than the neck and it can't withdraw its fist. To get away, all the monkey has to do is let go. But it doesn't. Does that sound like us as well? Yeah? That we're often trapped by that we won't let go of. <laughs> if you think of the way our lives are often cluttered with stuff, have you ever had that feeling that your life is cluttered with stuff and you just won't let it go? And you feel entrapped by it and persecuted by it? Yeah? Does that ever happen to you, that feeling of being entrapped by it? I always remember, um, I remember being in my back garden one year and hearing over the hedges, and this, was, this is absolutely true, hearing over the hedges a conversation between two neighbours of mine one said to the other, I couldn't possibly lend you that, I don't even use it myself. <laughs> Trapped or not. <laughs> I had great difficulty in restraining myself when I heard that. But we're often holding on, aren't we? That, and that, that's very indicative, this idea of holding on, being weighted down, as Rilke says in that extract of the poem I read you. Weighted down, heavy, because of all that which, in a sense, weights us. All of those desires, all of those attachments, all of those clingings. And they don't have to be physical things. They don't have to be the stuff of your life. Yeah, the clutter. It can be your ideas. It can be your habit patterns. It can be your attachments. And I mean attachments which are unhealthy to others that hold you, weight you in this life, and so that we can't fly. As Rilke says, all things want to fly. Yeah. What, is fl what is flying a metaphor for freedom? Yeah. And that's what we often don't feel in our lives. Hence, we plod along and we'll keep on doing the same things and we'll keep on trying, you know, keep on trying the habit of desire as a way of assuaging the difficulties of life. Yeah. Trying to cover over the impermanence, the mortality, the difficulty, in the dukkha that we encounter, and even the fragility of ourselves. Yeah. We feel that we're solid 
and actually we have an inkling that we're not quite as solid as we are, as we think we are. Yeah? Not quite so stable as we might like to be. Yeah? There's a kind of inkling at the back of our minds that somehow that we're not quite so stable. This, and an awful lot more, is what the Buddha is really trying to get us initially to see. Not, and I joked about it, but it's not to depress us. It's actually to see clearly. This is where the insight lies, to see clearly into this. Because only by seeing clearly this, and I don't mean just intellectually, this would be a very poor this would be a very poor approach if it was just intellectual. But to see it with your heart, your body and your mind. Yeah. To really incorporate it. Lovely physical metaphor. Incorporate it into your sense of being in the world. Only when we start to incorporate this does, you know, do we find that impetus to want to change to make moves in directions, to take little forays out into a world that isn't so controlled, so regulated. And the question ultimately becomes, and this is what the Buddha is really offering, because remember that at the heart of all of this, at the heart of this malaise, if you want to call it that, driving this desiring is... Greed, desire, aversion, and confusion. Yeah. And basically the Buddha is asking you something. He says, is that the way you want to live? Yeah. I don't see these texts as being doctrinal. They're texts that ask you questions. Yeah. They're more like skills manuals. They ask you questions and you know, teach you things. Is that the way you want to live? Is that the way that you are happy to live with greed, aversion and delusion? Because actually there is another way to live. Another way to be in this world that isn't driven by greed, aversion and confusion. Yeah. If we looked at the roots, the psychological roots of all of our states of mind which are unhappy, unwholesome and dukkering then we would find greed, aversion and delusion or confusion at their very base. We would find that. You know, a genealogical tree of our, all of our unhappy states of mind, you would find those three roots there. And the Buddha is saying, is that the way you want to live? Because he's offering an alternative. This is what he offers. He offers the alternative and says it is possible to live with those opposites, with the diametric opposites to greed, aversion and confusion, to live with generosity, to live with friendliness and compassion, and to live with genuine understanding, real understanding about the way things are. Yeah. So it's not as if this picture that's being painted is a bleak picture. It says the patient is ill, but it's not terminal. <laughs> yeah, the patient is most definitely ill in this way, 
but not terminal in the state that you can, you can do better <laughs> yeah, than the way that you're going now. And we can do this almost incrementally. We get these images, and I'll talk a lot more about this on the last night. We get these images that somehow, you know, the Buddha's enlightenment because of the mythologies and the stories and that we hear about this is somehow something like a blinding light on the road to Damascus. He kind of gets it all suddenly. Yeah. The image, I think, that's being painted within these early texts is often of an incremental waking up. Yeah. We begin to wake up. We begin to nirvana. I'll use deliberate, deliberately the Sanskrit version of the term. We nirvana. I mean, this, this term is so laden, it's even entered the English language in very incorrect ways often to almost describe some mystical state. And it isn't. It's often used to describe literally the going out you know, of three fires. You know, fires are big metaphors used in Indian culture. I won't go into this. But it talks about three fires of greed, aversion, and confusion. Greed, aversion, and confusion. Those three things that we've been talking about. But a lot of this talk that I've given has you know, kind of circulated around. Greed, aversion, and confusion. These fires are kept going by us in different ways. Habit patterns, attachments, reinforce, keep these fires going. Yeah? Yet they can go out. And when they drop away, it's that glimpse of freedom. When they drop away. What the Buddha is suggesting is that they can go out completely. That they can actually, if we don't continue to fuel them, a fire is only getting, it's a really lovely metaphor actually, a fire is only kept going as long as we keep putting fuel on it, isn't it? Yeah? If you starve a fire of fuel, it will go out. And in a sense, that's what we begin to do when we enter into this path and start even in little ways to approach things differently. So instead of approaching your difficulties, even the things that arise for you with aversion, no, I don't want to know about that. Yeah, go away, leave me alone, I don't want that. <laughs> yeah. When we start to approach that with a bit more friendliness, we're starting to suffocate it. We're starting to withdraw the fuel because it feeds on aversion. All things to live, to keep on going, require nutriment. Nutrition, don't they? You know, we require nutrition, everything around us. The fire, if you like, using a kind of extended metaphor here, but requires nutrition, doesn't it? It requires to be fed, to keep it going. So what the Buddha is suggesting is when we start to approach things in a different way, to see them in different ways, then we can, in a sense, start to grow one thing, cultivate something, friendliness, compassion, joy. Yeah, we haven't talked about that yet. Yeah, you're probably getting the impression this is a pretty joyless path so far. <laughs> But it isn't, actually. Yeah. Joy is an intrinsic part of this path. 
You know, so we're cultivating these attitudes of mind. We're cultivating those. And on, you know, when you cultivate one thing, you cease to cultivate something else. And now we're always cultivating, aren't we? You choose what you want to cultivate. Do you want to cultivate your greed, aversion and confusion? Or do you want to cultivate generosity, compassion and friendliness and real understanding about the way things are? What do you want to cultivate? Again, it's a question you have to ask in your life. And it goes along with that question of how do I want to live? What do you want to cultivate? Because actually, you're going to cultivate something. <laughs> you're going to cultivate and make those bars thicker. Yeah. You're going to tie yourself to ever greater habit patterns. And notice they get more and more intractable often the older we get. Yeah, those habit patterns. Yeah, it's not simply it's a habit pattern. That's the way it is. Have you noticed that? And the way you fix yourself? Yeah. You never say, well, actually, I have this sort of strange little habit that I do, and I do it occasionally. It's not really that important. Do you? You don't, you don't do that. You go, that's the way I am. That <laughs> ties us to a sense of who we are. You know, no matter how miserable it is, that's the way I am. <laughs> so you have to ask yourself, what do you want to cultivate in your life? Yeah. It's sad but strange that some people only begin to discover the seeds of their freedom towards their end, towards their death. Yeah? It's, it's sad, still very inspiring, actually, that people do discover this. The playwright Dennis Potter, I don't know if some of you might know of his work, the playwright Dennis Potter was interviewed a couple of, you know, about a month before he died on television and said he had never experienced cherry blossom. Again, notice cherry blossom. He'd never experienced it with the vividness that he experienced it at that point in his life, you know, prior, a month prior to his death. Yeah. I want to read you a quotation, which again I think is very inspiring, by somebody who actually wrote a kind of record of up to their death. It was uh, somebody who was a Scandinavian compare on, on television, and she suddenly discovered she had this rampant form of motor neurone disease. Um, and she was only in her 40s, and eventually she obviously succumbed to it. But she actually wrote this little book, which is called Rowing Without Oars, which was an account of her time up until the time she couldn't write any longer. And, and she said this, which I think is actually quite inspiring. You know, and I would say, if only we could get there before we got to this point in our lives which is, she says this, I'm going to die of ALS, this is this particular form of motor neuron disease, if nothing unpredictable happens. There are two roads that I can take. One is simply to lie down, be bitter and wait. The other is to make something worthwhile of this misfortune. See it in a positive light, however banal that might sound. My road is the second. I have to live in the immediate present. There is no bright future for me, but there is a bright present. Children live like this only for the present. 
nothing coming afterwards. Therefore I laugh like a child, uncontrollably. The whole of my adult life, she says, I have thought it will be all right in the end. I have to do this first and it will be all right. But this way of thinking is no longer possible for me. The strange thing is that nowadays, now that I'm terminally ill, I feel moments of great joy. A joy such as I've hardly ever felt before in my life. Happiness has never been a constant for me. But now it's becoming one. And that's why I laugh. And if it has anything to do with the paralysis, then it's a blessing that comes with this disease. It's quite inspiring, isn't it? In a way. In a sense, this person, called Ula Karan Linquist, who wrote this, knew that her end would come. We act as if we don't. We don't embrace our present. As Pascal said in that quotation on the first night, we look to the future. And in the interim, we start to plan it by what we want, what we have, where we want to be, who we want to be with, and we fill it with all of those plans. And we get admired, caught, enmeshed, tied to a form of greed, aversion and confusion which perpetuates our habit patterns. And the Buddha is saying we can release ourselves from this. And it might seem enormous, it might seem huge to release ourselves from this. The Buddha certainly says it's difficult. He doesn't say it's easy. But what he does say, and I think this gives us all heart and hope, is that it's possible for everybody. Yeah. This is the radicality of his message, actually, in ancient India. The, radi- the radicality of his message was this was for everybody. It didn't matter you know, what class of society, what caste you came from, you know, what your sex was, you know, what race you were. It didn't matter. This was possible for everybody, this form of liberation from greed, aversion, and confusion. And he says, that is what I'm teaching. How do you want to live your life? I come back to that question because it is the question that we really have to ask ourselves. Do we embrace the difficulties or do we continue to shun them? Do we turn gently towards those things which we find problematic in our lives, gently turn towards them with some kindness or just, just simple acknowledgement that they're there? Do we turn towards the impermanence, the insecurity, the insecurities of our lives that we can discover when we enter into actually genuinely confronting what is there? Now, the Buddha taught for 45 years. At the end of his life, you think he might have given quite a long dispensation and quite a long teaching. He gave basically two lines at the end of his life. I'll give you my version of it, not the polite version of it. You know, absolutely everything you're going to encounter is impermanent. Now get on with it. <laughs> yeah. 
in a way, I'll, I'll give you the I'll give you the polite version as well. Yeah, all all phenomena are compounded and as such are impermanent. Now strive on diligently. <laughs> Comes to the same thing. Get on with it. Yeah. We can try to flee it, and we can try to flee it through the habit patterns that we develop. Or we can embrace it in a friendliness. And ultimately, actually, such as you know, the particular person I read you the quotation from, we can embrace it with a joyfulness. Yeah? With a joyfulness. A joyfulness that, in a sense, is celebratory rather than depressing. Because prima facie, you know, the face value of everything I've said could be just really depressing. It isn't. It's actually liberating. Even the truth of impermanence is liberating. It's scary, but it's liberating. If I know if things are impermanent, I cease to try and cling to them desperately. You know, why should I cling to it if it's impermanent? You know, again, Rilke said you know, once, be ahead of all your partings. Be ahead of them. You know, we don't have to view this with a morbid, morbid mind. We can approach it so it's liberatory and also joyful in our approach. Zen Buddhism, I'm not personally a practitioner of Zen Buddhism, but has some wonderful poems and haiku and stories which are always pointing, if you like, the humour or pointing up the humour behind the human condition in relationship to things like impermanence. Yeah. One of my classic favourites, some of you might have heard this before, I'm sure you have, but one of my absolute favourite haikus is My house burnt down last night. Now I have a clear view of the moon. <laughs> yeah. Or another lovely one, which is Come quickly by the fire and I will show you something wonderful. A ball of snow. One more. <laughs> a beautiful red rose by the roadside. My horse ate it. <laughs> now you can see there is a sense of joyfulness behind those. Um, they're all about impermanence, they're about loss, they're about all sorts of things. Um, and these are scattered throughout you know, Buddhist traditions, but they're particularly there in Zen Buddhism, to try and point up that we don't have to get hooked into some kind of morbid states of mind around these dimensions of life, that we can actually embrace them in a joyfulness, in a gentle joyfulness, an appreciation of what life has to offer. Because, yes, all of these things are true, from the Buddhist perspective that I've spoken about, you have to decide for yourself, you have to examine them in relationship to your own lives and see if anything of this holds water for you. But even if it does, he's saying there is actually this cultivation that brings about a joyful way of being in this world. And that joyfulness comes through the liberation of that tyranny of greed, aversion and delusion. coming to the present and finding that joy in this present moment. It might not be there in the future. It might not be there in the past. But can we discover it now 
Can we choose the ways that we want to live? Yeah? To live with the greed, aversion and delusion or to live in another way which in a sense completely transforms the world. Same world but completely transformed. Not to say that the pain is going to be eradicated, the injustices are suddenly going to disappear in the world, but we approach it with a different mind. A mind that no longer is trying to evade, trying to cover over those things. I'll finish on the quotation. It's a poem. It's by a poet called Fernando Pessoa. Some of you might know. A lovely name, Pessoa. It means no one. <laughs> Mr. No One. He says this. Beyond the bend in the road, there may be a well, there may be a castle, and there may be just one more road. I don't know and I don't ask. As long as I'm, as long as I'm on the road that's before the bend, and I look only at the road before the bend, because the road before the bend is all I can see, it would do me no good to look anywhere else or at what I can't see. Let's pay attention only to where we are. There's enough beauty in simply being here and not somewhere else. If there are people beyond the bend in the road, let them worry about what's beyond the bend in the road. That's for them. That for them is the road. If we are to arrive there, when we arrive there, we'll know. For now, we know only that we're not there. Here, there's just the road before the bend. And before the bend, there's the road without any bend. Thank you for your attention once again. Thank you, everybody. Let's just sit for a, a second or two, just to settle before we take a break. <clears throat> Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.